Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 52, Revelation, Jesus Speaks to the Lampstands. And in this episode, what I would like to do is to offer an introduction to the next main section of the book of Revelation, and that is chapters 2 and 3, the individual addresses to each of the seven churches. And in this episode, the reason why I've decided to do an introduction to it before we actually get into the words to the church in Ephesus is because there are a couple of patterns that I want to point out to you that are evident in all seven churches, as well as the pattern of Jesus himself as the faithful witness, particularly as it relates to him talking to the churches as lampstands. And so I think you're going to find this um, introductory section very, very helpful Um, This may even be one that you want to go back and listen to again because I would not not only like to inform you about the things that are in Revelation, but as we said in the introduction, this is also transformational um, um, as well as informational. And so I really do hope that you are encouraged by what we do here and um, are growing closer in your understanding of who Jesus is and who he wants you to be as we work our way through the book. So let's just jump right in. As we begin this week's episode, what I'd like to do is just draw your attention to a few of the components that appear in Jesus' address to each of the seven churches and then to make a few observations about those things. But if you begin in chapter 2, the very first words to the church in Ephesus, um, you'll, you'll begin to see this pattern. And if you are paying close attention, you'll notice that the pattern continues like this. There is some address toward each church um, addressing them with a particular aspect of Jesus's character and person that he actually had just revealed to John earlier from chapter 1, the eyes like a flame of fire or the feet like burnished bronze or the one who was the living one who died and came to life. One of those aspects of Jesus's character and person as revealed to John is revealed to each one of these seven churches. It's followed by a reminder from Jesus that he knows each of these churches and each of their situations. He knows what they are going through. He knows how hard they're trying. He knows whether or not their faithfulness to him is as true as they claim that it is, and so on. And so sometimes his words of, I know, offer tremendous encouragement to the people And sometimes the fact that Jesus knows puts some people a little bit on edge. And I hope as we go through, you'll notice that it's never his intention to put people on edge. He just wants them to be aware, as we saw in chapter 1, that with eyes like a flame of fire, he most certainly sees into the hearts of everyone and can penetrate even into the darkest places of the human heart. This is then followed, based on what he knows, it's followed by a word of affirmation, rebuke, encouragement, or a challenge to this particular church in their particular situation. He then calls them either to repentance or to remain faithful based upon whether or not he had to challenge them or whether he was encouraging them and affirming them in their particular situation. He then offers a promise or a threat to those who conquer or to those who overcome 
And the threat then applies to those who don't, those who don't overcome or those who don't repent or those who don't change their ways or those who don't get their act um, in order. And yet for those who do um, remain faithful, who persevere, who endure, who do not back off of their faithful witness despite what it may cost them, he offers them some sort of promise. Um, Those promises actually show up at the end of the book, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But then each letter as well concludes with a a repeated refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the pattern. And patterns are very, very important in the Bible, but particularly when they show up one right after the other, as they do in Revelation 2 and 3. And you know that we have spoken at length about the fact that we are to be, and by we I mean Christians, but I am a Christian and am in a church that preaches the gospel. So sometimes I'll say we, and that's what I mean, but we are to be Jesus's witnesses, according to Acts 1.8, witnessing to the faithful witness himself, as Jesus is described in Revelation 1.5. And so our role as lampstands, remember, is to shine light on the space in front of us, which is the bread of the presence, Jesus himself, the light of the world, according to John 8. And yet we need to remember that Revelation was not written to the world. It was not written to Babylon. It was written to the church. And so the way for the church to bear witness to Jesus, to bear witness to the light, is first to allow that light to shine into our hearts, to expose in us what needs to be seen so that Jesus can deal with it. And that way, the church will be prepared to be his witnesses both to one another as well as to the world. And so Jesus addresses each church with a different aspect of who he is because there is something about Jesus that each church needs to know in order to correct their poor witness or to strengthen their resolve to continually um, faithfully witnessing the way that they are. So in other words, a true picture of Jesus is the solution to every issue that any church or any Christian in those churches will ever face. Let me repeat this because this is very, very important. A true picture of Jesus is the solution to every issue that any church or any Christian in any church will ever face. Jesus is the light of the world. We are the light of the world, according to Matthew 5, insofar as Jesus' light shines onto us. For the church then to be lampstands, bearing witness to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, they need to know Jesus as their light in order for their witness to be faithful. Now, this is why so much of the New Testament speaks about the growth of Christians or of being Jesus' disciples as their being conformed to the image of Christ looking more and more like Jesus in their everyday lives. Let me just give you two examples. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, says this in chapter 4, verse 19, My little children, For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. 
Paul says in Colossians that he toils with all his energy that mightily works in him so that they would look like Jesus. That is Paul's greatest goal. That is Jesus's greatest goal. And so the reason why Christian growth, what's oftentimes called sanctification, is such a long process is because we are always coming to understand more and more areas of our lives that have not yet been exposed to the light of Jesus's presence. When we allow him to shine his light in one area of our lives and we receive his forgiveness and healing and redemption there, it opens up new places in our hearts and our souls where further work still needs to be done. And since Jesus is ultimately interested in the hearts of his followers, transforming them at the heart level, growth in Christ goes far beyond adding a few new habits to our lives. Jesus wants to address attitudes, ways of thinking, how we act and react when our feelings get hurt, how we view those who stand opposed to us, the all-too-easy ways we justify withholding love from certain people or holding on to our bitterness or resentment toward those who offend us, the presence of fear in our lives, the subtle ways we seek to control other people, or the ways in which we use religion to keep God from getting too close to us. The pursuit of Jesus then for the Christian is a lifelong pursuit of coming to recognize the seemingly infinite places in our souls where Jesus is not yet our trusted Savior, learning to open ourselves up to him honestly in those places, inviting his transforming presence to begin working in us precisely there, and then by faith, choosing to live out kingdom of God ways of being in our daily lives. Jesus calls it taking up your cross daily and following him, and he means coming to discover every day new places where a death of our kingdom needs to occur in order for the life of Jesus' kingdom to come. So as lampstands, as witnesses, Jesus' address of us centers entirely on knowing who he is. When our witness falters, or when we are tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to be harsh in our judgment of other people, when we are discouraged that witnessing to Jesus in the world proves harder than we thought it would be, what we need is a fresh picture of Jesus, to be reminded of who Jesus is. And each church depending upon the particular issues they face, needs to focus their attention on the particular aspect of the character of Jesus that they are not currently focusing on that will remedy their issue. This is why the pattern to all seven churches begins by addressing a different aspect of the character of Jesus from chapter 1 to each individual church. You'll notice when you read Revelation 2 and 3 that none of the characteristics of Jesus are repeated. They're all addressed to different situations, which tells us that all seven churches, when they encompass and grasp the whole picture of who Jesus is, will together be united into a church that most faithfully understands Jesus and therefore one that most faithfully represents him to the world. Now, sometimes their particular aspect of Jesus's character encourages them. At other times, their current life choices warrant a rebuke from Jesus. 
and sometimes, as we'll see, it's a mixture of both. But whatever each individual situation, the church reorients itself by fixing its eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith, as Hebrews 12.2 reminds us. Jesus does not come with condemnation, but he comes still as a witness, a faithful witness to the truth of who he is, and therefore one who is committed to making sure that we are becoming who we are supposed to be and continually imaging him rightly in the world. This is his calling to his church. He wants to deal faithfully with his church so that his church can faithfully represent him to the world. A number of years ago, I came across a fantastic book on Revelation called A Slaughtered Lamb. And it's written by Gregory Stevenson, and I just thought it would be fitting here to share with you a couple uh, paragraphs from a few of the things that he says in his book. And so here are just a few of his thoughts. Jesus is the preeminent faithful witness in the book of Revelation. The pattern of the Christ, this is a phrase that Stevenson uses a lot, the pattern of the Christ, but the pattern of the Christ is this movement from faithful witness to suffering and death to resurrection and vindication. When John announces in Revelation 1-3 that blessed are all those who keep what is written in this book, he is announcing a call to action. That action is neither the violent overthrow of oppressors nor accommodation to Roman imperial culture as a means of preserving security and prosperity. It is the call to fulfill the pattern of the Christ. In this sense, reading Revelation exclusively as an attempt to comfort Christians in their hardship and to assure them of ultimate victory misses the point. Revelation calls upon Christians to engage the world as faithful witnesses, as Christ did, with the full understanding that faithful witness to God, when carried out within the kingdom of the world, may very well lead to their suffering and possible death, as it did with Christ, but that God will vindicate them for their faithful witness, as he did Christ. The first three chapters of Revelation introduce the pattern of the Christ— call upon his followers to embody that pattern and critique their success or failure at doing so. The messages to the churches can be grouped broadly into two categories. Those churches encountering opposition and suffering from within their environment, from false teachers, poverty, oppression, slander, etc. And those churches compromising with their environment in idolatry, sexual immorality, and economic practices. Furthermore, these categories are not mutually exclusive, but may overlap and intermingle within the same community. The seven letters are a reminder that evil is not simply something that is out there to be resisted, but something that lives among and within us. Satan's opposition to the kingdom of God may manifest in political empires, in economic structures, in social institutions, in the synagogue, and even within the church itself. The seven letters further function as an analysis of the church's faithfulness or lack of faithfulness in embodying the pattern of the Christ. 
The pattern of the Christ is that faithful witness to the kingdom of God leads to suffering, often generated by those in opposition, but that endurance in faith results in vindication. The alternative pattern of commendation and censor in the letters reveals the success or failure of the churches in embodying this pattern. And I am personally grateful for Stevenson's thoughts there um, because he is exactly right. This is the way Revelation opens. It opens with a vision of Jesus, but it displays for us the pattern of the Christ. If Jesus is the faithful witness and his faithfulness to the truth, his self-sacrificial love and kindness and compassionate servant heart to the world resulted in his death, but because of the humility that Jesus embodied when God chose to raise him from the dead and to vindicate him, as saying that the kingdom of this world and the the powers and authorities that be could not hold the kingdom of God's king down, he will be vindicated, he will be resurrected. The call for the churches to witness to that person means that their witness will either be commended or critiqued based on how closely their witness resembles that. And yet I am not unaware of the tremendous responsibility that that actually demands on our lives. But I have seen it now around Christian circles for many, many years, the tendency, the strong tendency within Christians not to want to face that type of fate as a result of their faithful witness. And so what tends to happen is we soften that witness so as to not incur the kinds of things we don't want to see happen. And so when Jesus goes through this list, he addresses some aspect of his character or person that is directly um, applicable to each church's situation, reminds them that he knows them and their situation, affirms, rebukes, encourages, or challenges them in their situation, calls them to repentance or to remain faithful, promises something to them that they will receive if they conquer or overcome, and then reminds them that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the promises that he makes to those who overcome or who conquer surface actually again in the final chapters of Revelation. But there is a gap between his promises to them and whether or not they will repent or remain faithful through everything they will face. The kingdom of this world does not play nicely. And Jesus' fate as well as the faithful witnesses, um, Jesus's fate rather as the faithful witness, very well may be our fate as we attempt to faithfully witness to him in the same kingdom of the world that he did. Hence again, our call, according to Stevenson, to embody the pattern of the Christ. This movement from faithful witness to potentially suffering and death to ultimately resurrection and vindication. So really, the book of Revelation then can actually be read through seven different lenses, if you will. Now, there are seven types of churches, all facing various challenges to them, faithfully witnessing to Jesus in their context. And guess what? Every context is different. So for the Christians in Smyrna, who are faithfully representing Jesus and receiving persecution for it, 
when they read, let's say, Revelation 18, for example, and they see Babylon's eventual destruction, those words encourage the church in Smyrna to continue to remain faithful. Their suffering will not endure forever. Babylon's end is coming. But when the church in Pergamum, who has compromised its witness so as to not receive as much persecution from Babylon, when they read Revelation 18, some of the things Babylon is said to be destroyed for, the Christians in Pergamum have actually assimilated into their way of life. Uh-oh. So these Christians read Revelation 18 very differently. They are invited to ask, are there things in my own life that will one day be destroyed? The call then in Revelation 18.4 to come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, takes on a very different tone for the Christians in Pergamum than it would for the Christians in Smyrna. You see, the same reality is being described, but based upon what's going on in your life or in your church's life, you may hear that reality very differently. And this is the point. At different times and to different situations and in different contexts, we all need different aspects of the character of Jesus. Sometimes what we need is a word of comfort. Sometimes what we need is a word of rebuke. Sometimes what we need is both. Sometimes there are aspects of our church's life that is working and looking exactly as it should. At other times, we have glaring blind spots. Things that we think are faithfully witnessing to Jesus are actually damaging the outside world's view of Jesus without us even knowing it. This is why we take our cues from the one who knows all things and who sees all things. And we ought to be the first ones to admit we may not have the best perspective on whether or not our witness to Jesus is as pure and as faithful as he thinks it is. And he will have words to say to churches who have a belief that they are alive and that their church is thriving and that the world is better because of their church's presence in their community. Jesus says, you think you are alive, but you are dead. Now that is a strong word of rebuke. And yet Jesus is simply coming to his churches to point these things out and to offer them the chance to repent because he doesn't want them to be swept away in the eventual destruction of Babylon in the end. Will this church respond? Will they heed his rebuke? We don't know. Will we? We don't know. The book of Revelation is not, as Stevenson pointed out, giving us this comfort that one day all the world's going to be destroyed and we just need to sit back and wait for it to happen. That is not the call of this book. We have a call to action. We are to faithfully be his witnesses. We are to keep what is written in this book. And as we walk through each of the seven letters, these individual components to this letter that, that Jesus is addressing these churches, we will have ample opportunity to see the kinds of things that we very well may have as blind spots in our own lives and in our own churches. And the posture of a lampstand is to shine light 
on the presence, um, on the bread of the presence in front of it. And that same bread of the presence lovingly comes to us to point out the things in us that need tweaked. But depending upon the context, a different aspect of the character of Jesus will need to come to the surface. And so let's think about that for just a second as I wrap up. We are called to be his witnesses in the world. We are called to do the same thing for the world that Jesus is doing to us. So think about when you meet with a friend who is discouraged. Think about of all the things you could say to that friend, what is the one thing about the character of Jesus that that friend in that moment desperately needs to be reminded of so as to draw comfort and strength from his presence? We are here to shine light onto Jesus. We have an entire Bible and lots of common sense advice that we could offer to someone in a moment of crisis. But do you know what that person actually needs in a moment of crisis? They don't need a pat on the back. They need to be embraced and hugged by us, but they need to be offered something about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, which will offer comfort to them in a moment of needed comfort or potentially something about what Jesus has or is that can offer them a potential word of rebuke. But I am very cautious, the longer I um, serve in ministry, I'm very cautious to give just anybody um, a green light to be the one to determine whether what this person needs is a word of rebuke or whether what they need is a word of compassion. This is where the Holy Spirit plays an absolutely vital role in the life of the church. We do not know. We oftentimes lack the wisdom and the discernment to know how best to share the truth with someone who needs it. In those moments, Jesus reminds his disciples, the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what you need to say. In the context at which he spoke those words, he was talking about those being dragged before the authorities or before the, the rulers and called to question on the kinds of lives they were living. And he said, don't be afraid. Don't worry that you won't know what to say in those moments. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say. But this is a call for us to take our cues, number one, from Jesus and allow him the freedom to rebuke us when we misspeak or when we have lifestyle practices that do not line themselves up with the way he actually is and was in the world. And it is going to demand that we continually go back to refresh our picture of, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because there are a lot of fake Jesuses floating around in churches, people who think that what Jesus primarily was was here to thump people over the head with the laws and rules of God and to shame people into compliance. That is absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. Jesus embodied the self-sacrificial love of a father for wayward sons and daughters while he was on this earth. The people, ironically, that Jesus was the most hard-headed with were the religious people who felt it was their job to tell the rest of the world how bad they were in comparison with the so-called righteousness that the religious people possessed. We're treading on very dangerous ground when we presume to be God's spokespeople for the rest of the world. 
One of the best ways to be a spokesman for Jesus to the world, one of the best ways to be a light bearer to the world of Jesus is to embody the lifestyle that Jesus embodied, which we can't do unless we open ourselves up to receiving Jesus's life in place of our own. So it is always a two-way street. It's, it's a revolving door. We receive into ourselves new areas where Jesus's life has not yet gripped our hearts. And as he softens us in those places, it sometimes is in those places where we become the most powerful instruments to be his light bearers in the world. But he is going to address seven different churches in Asia Minor who all need to hear a slightly different version of the gospel. Um, and by that, I just mean emphasizing a slightly different aspect of the person of Jesus Christ who very much so embodied the good news of the kingdom so that it could correct a misunderstanding and or a misapplication or not yet a full application of which is causing their current struggles as a church. When they heed Jesus' call, realign themselves with the truth of who he is and properly repent, they find that endurance and strength come to them by Christ himself to continually faithfully witnessing. We will need the messages to all seven of these churches in order to get the completed picture. And thankfully, that's exactly what we have. So next week, we're going to take another look at the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, because this will also open up to us profound insight to, to grasp most clearly what Jesus wants us to hear. So that's all the time we have for this week. Talk to you next time.